0: Hello and welcome to this session entitled Cruciform Imagination for a World in Crisis. Uh, My name's John Swales, I live in Leeds and I blog at www.cruciformjustice.com Before we get into this session's material let let me share with you a few poems to sort of help set the scene. Do not run from concrete reality into a world of romanticised abstractions. Take courage, the truth at times will hurt. Do not romanticise reality, but look it straight in the eye and behold the nightmarish evil that many endure. Don't dodge or look away. But lament and grieve the kingdom is calling don't dodge or look away but listen and love the kingdom is calling for he will transform reality there is not a hurt that he will not heal do not romanticize reality but look it in the eye And commit yourself to justice and peace. Hold the hand of the hurting. Wrap your arms around the broken. Hold their gaze and whisper, this is not the way it was meant to be. Speak truth to those corrupted by power. Stand up for the oppressed. Hold their gaze and whisper, this is not the way it is meant to be. Do not romanticise reality, but rest a while in extravagant love. Bathe in his kindness, receive his healing. Do not romanticise reality, but know that hope is on the way. Here's another poem entitled Two Religions. There is a certain kind of religion, an opium for the masses. It numbs, distracts and anesthetizes us from the pain of the world into a heavenly world of spiritualizing irrelevance. There is a certain kind of religion, an opium for the masses. It supports, benefits and acts as a chaplain to the status quo, supporting the structures and systems that reap destruction. There is another kind of religion, a hope for the nations. It awakens, summons and calls us into the pain of the world, into a world of Christ-like justice. There is another kind of religion, a hope for the nations. It challenges, confronts and rebels against the status quo and offers a conspiracy of compassion that leads towards human flourishing. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. To visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the structures and systems of domination. Well, let's not romanticise reality. Let's talk about the story or the stories we find ourselves in. We inhabit and improvise our lives within at least two big stories. The first is the narrative of the gospel, creation and new creation. It's a tale where the father, far from abandoning this world, demonstrates his love. In this account, we pledge allegiance to Jesus, the crucified and risen God-man, as the world's true Lord and King. It's a story in which the Spirit is actively at work in both the church and the world. The second story we live in is the story of climate breakdown. This world is beautiful. Wow. But for a moment, I want us to think about how the painful moment of history we find ourselves in, the brokenness. I want us to listen, as Pope Francis says, to the cry of the earth. By focusing our attention on climate breakdown, global temperatures are already 1.2 degrees above pre-industrial levels and are wreaking havoc across the globe through floods, droughts, fires and an increase in extreme weather. Fires in Europe and North America. Creation groans. Floods in Libya. Tens of thousands swept away. Creation groans. Famine in East Africa. Millions of children malnourished through widespread crop failure and death of livestock. Creation groans. Heaven weeps. Our hearts are heavy and our souls are sad. Sadly, however, things are said to get a whole lot worse. Just last week, the latest New England report said that we're on a trajectory to reach three degrees above pre-industrial temperatures by the end of the century. That's a world of mass migration mass starvation and societal collapse in the words of the un secretary general we are on the highway to climate hell with our foot on the accelerator and these rising temperatures are undoubtedly caused by human beings through the burning and use of fossil fuels we turn to fossil fuels for blessings and indeed, we were blessed for many generations, but now at the hinge of history, our addiction and dependency on fossil fuels are jeopardising all we hold dear. In the words of Sir David King, and these were spoken a few years ago, he was a former chief government uh, scientific advisor, and he says this, what we do over the next three to four years I believe, is going to determine the future of humanity. We are in a very, very desperate situation. And so we live in these stories, the story of the gospel, and also the story of climate breakdown. I'm reminded of these words of J.R.R. R. Tolkien. I wish it need not have happened in my time, said Frodo. So do I, said Gandalf, and so do all who live to see such times, but that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given for us. Well, within these stories, um, I want to start thinking about imagination. And imagination is really important as we live in these stories. In Ephesians uh, chapter 1, the Apostle Paul says this I do not cease to give thanks for you. Of his great power. In this prayer, the Apostle Paul prays that the church in Ephesus has their heart open, so that they may see the heart, not the physical muscle that beats, but you know the heart, the seat of emotions, the place of inner identity, from which we find meaning, purpose, and direction, the place by which our affections and loves are shaped and can be awakened. Paul prays that they would be enlightened, they'd be awakened, so that hope would arise. It is one thing to receive information and data into the brain. It is another thing to have our hearts stirred, enlightened, and hope awakened. We may also say that the heart is the seat of the imagination. One of the most pervasive problems in contemporary Western Christianity is the mistaken assumption that theological information automatically translates into transformation. We tend to have a naive conviction that merely reading another book, doing a Bible study, or taking class will bring about change. But real change happens in individuals when our hearts are stirred when our imaginations, our deep stories, our worldviews are so saturated that they give way to sustained, deliberate action. And it's action in the face of climate breakdown that can actually give us hope. And real change happens in societies when we have a collective imagination, when we live on the basis of shared myths. It is in the collective imagination that myths are born. Powerful stories capturing the essence of a community's values, fears and aspirations. Myths serve as a binding force providing a shared framework for understanding the world and our place in it. And myths are supported by stories and by symbols and by liturgical action in remembrance the uh, services here uh, notice the picture here of the uh, cenopath, uh, cenotaph we here have a shared myth a collective understanding of history which affects us in the present and can, and can lead us into the future reinforced by symbol and flags and liturgical action these narratives They transcend individual perspectives and they create a communal identity and they foster a sense of belonging. And the power of myths, this collective imagination, lies in their ability to inspire and guide, offering uh, tales that resonate, deep tales that resonate with universal human experiences. These myths transmit cultural wisdom through generations and they have the potential to shape behaviour influencing societal norms and values. In this way the collective imagination expressed through myths becomes a force moulding the character not only of individuals but of civilizations. and they contribute to the rich tapestry of human history. In our own day, the stories of unrestrained capitalism, of endless growth and consumerism, these are the myths that have taken hold. They communicate to us in a a deep way about the way the world is and the way it will be. And these myths, these collective imaginations, reinforce business unusual. But they also have teeth, for they bring desolation and destruction. In Paul's day and age, the streets of Ephesus were full of symbols, stories and narratives that shaped the imaginations of those in the city. For instance, the architecture, the cultural liturgies, the festivals, the plays, the songs of the city would reinforce and celebrate the glory of Rome, the Pax Romana, and the notion of business as usual. They would form and shape moral imaginations of the inhabitants, so that they, without much thought, would pledge allegiance to Rome, the emperor and the economic system built on injustice, oppression of women infanticide and slavery and into this world the early church was being formed and shaped with a different narrative a different myth was being formed they rejected the status quo they rebelled against the deep myths of the age and they marched to the beat of a different drum in which the crucified one rather than caesar was the center of the cosmos rome categorised human beings into the elites they would be treated with dignity honor and respect and the expendables who could be used abused mistreated by those in toxic power in contrast the church held to the radical and revolutionary idea story and myth that all human beings are made in god's image The early church stood in stark contrast to the propaganda of Rome by having their imagination shaped by a counter-narrative. Their moral imaginations were stirred and shaped by the Spirit's guidance through the sacred stories of Scripture. The telling and retelling of the Jesus story through songs and psalms and liturgies and the sacraments of baptism and Eucharist. In the book of Revelation, a book which can only be authentically read with playful imagination, we see John the Revelator challenging the prevailing ideologies and myths of his day, using story and metaphor to show that Rome, Well, all that glitters is not gold. Rome is a beast. It's a seductive harlot, a destroyer of the world. And followers of Jesus need to reject its truth claims, narratives and deep myths and instead follow the way of the Lamb. In our own day and age, perhaps we need to recognise that we have been seduced by what I call the the unholy trinity, unrestrained capitalism, consumerism and and individualism. And we need to recognise that they are, in a sense, the destroyers of the earth that are, are driving us further into climate breakdown. But instead of following the unholy trinity, Instead, we follow the way of the Lamb. Well, I just want to highlight now uh, four different ways in which our imaginations can be uh, shaped. The first one, I would say that we have an anthropological imagination. Um, if we were to just have a, a secular view, of the world, a world which isn't enchanted, in which there's no, there is no God, a world in which we are just the products of non-theistic evolution. We might say, well, it's a dog-eat-dog world. It's survival of the fittest. And why, actually, should we go along with the Declaration, Universal Declaration of Human Rights? Surely, it's about you know that the. Uh, the strong, uh, the strong uh, survive. And actually, if you mistreat people on the way, that's okay. Um, what stories actually undergird the Universal Declaration of Human Rights? If we were to take um, traditional Hinduism, and here I'm not talking about. Uh, uh, the hindu who might be a uh, live next door be a great neighbor and friend in the workplace here i'm talking about the ideas of a traditional hinduism in which there is a caste system in a caste system you have the brahmins who are at the top and uh, they should be treated uh, with respect but at the at the at the bottom you have the uh, the dalit uh, community who can be um, you'd step over if you saw the wounded on the side of the road well in the opening chapters of the bible we have a mythic underpinning portrayed in the narrative of uh, the garden of eden the stories of adam and eve in which we see that all human beings Irrespective of skin colour, irrespective of you know caste designation, irrespective of money in the bank. All human beings are made in the image of God and should be treated with dignity, honour and respect. And in a world of climate breakdown, this imagination is necessary for sort of uh, to avoid what I'm, what we might call climate apartheid. What we're going to see in the coming decades is that the countries who have wealth and have power, they're going to uh, build walls, and they're going to say that we're okay. We're as long as we're okay, that's all right. While outside are the poorest nations who will suffer the most. And the sad reality of climate breakdown is that those who have contributed the least to climate breakdown, uh, look at the map here, the colours which are uh, 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 darker red are those who have the highest CO2 uh, emissions uh, per capita. And then you look at the map here, which shows climate vulnerabilities. Let's just flick between those for a second. As we can see, it's actually the former colonised countries with populations predominantly of black and brown skin who are already suffering the worst effects of climate breakdown whereas the consumption rates per person per capita are higher in the global north global responsibility for climate change is not shared is not equally shared what does it mean for us to have an anthropological imagination where we see all human beings as made in the image Of God, and how might this drive us to think more globally in our response to climate breakdown? What does it mean for us to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, and soul, and love our neighbours as ourselves? What does it mean not just to love our local neighbours, which we should, but to love our global neighbours? Well, we need this ethical imagination in which everyone is made in God's image. Second type of imagination, which I think we need, is that of a kingdom imagination. Throughout his earthly ministry, Jesus proclaimed, performed, embraced, and enacted the kingdom of God. He preached the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the good news, and he demonstrated what this looked like by healing the sick, forgiving sin, welcoming the weak, challenging injustice and laying down his life as an act of self-giving sacrificial love and this kingdom the government of god does not retreat into enigmatic realms of spiritual irrelevance but stands as a dynamic and transformative reign with the potential to bring about social political and economic changes that can impact the lives of individuals and communities. The reign and rule of the father stands in stark contrast to empires of domination and oppression, aligning with communities characterized by kindness, love and compassion. And what does it mean to have this type of kingdom imagination. You see, climate breakdown is an economic and political issue and unless we address inequality, we have no hope of avoiding the worst case scenarios. Let me spell this out. The richest 1% in the world produce twice as much emissions as the poorest 3.8 billion. And Unless things change, the UNHCR warns us that we may see as many as 1.2 billion refugees by 2050 as large parts of the world become uninhabitable due to extreme temperatures and increased sea level rise and conflict. In a church which is often apolitical, we don't do politics with a church, we focus on the spiritual, well, we've been deformed by the beasts of the age and we actually need to be reformed and shaped by the revolutionary mythic story of the kingdom it needs to get inside of us the story of the kingdom the great reversal in which the rejected and those placed on the margins would now have a place at the table meanwhile those who held seats of power and hoarded wealth acting as gatekeepers of the status quo, would find themselves relegated. For those liturgical enthusiasts among you, how do we let the words of the Magnificat get within us so that Mary's kingdom song, which imaginatively declares God's future, breaking into the present, becomes part of our missional DNA? Mary's song, steeped in this prophetic imagination, has this dream of the eschaton. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Mary's song, verse 52, addresses power. Mary's song addresses destitution. Verse 53, verse 53. And in verse 53, it also addresses wealth. What does it mean for us to have this kingdom imagination? Mary knows that the one who is being born is an agent of radical social change. And we know from Jesus as well that the community which is formed by her son has been. And could be again an agent of radical social change. Well, next point, I want to just focused on is, is having an eschatological imagination. This is related to the notion of the kingdom. And, and this, uh, the church at times does a good job of peddling what I call hopium. Or hopium is where we have a shot of hope which distracts us from reality. Or kind of like opium for the masses, whereby they endure suffering knowing they'll go to heaven when they die. No. Like the mythic power of the kingdom, eschatology, which is related to resurrection, propels us to action. You know, we can be contemplative activists spiritual revolutionaries whose imaginations have been so shaped that we act in a certain way let me share with you a blog post which i wrote a few days ago and i hope that this even stirs your imagination death adamantly utters no to the gift of life mirroring the yes spoken by the violence of crucifixion to both empire and injustice. Individual lives, crafting paragraphs of both joy and sorrow, seemingly conclude with a resolute full stop. While memories endure, bodies cremated, abandoned, under rubble, or laid to rest, fall silent, their voices stilled, Their songs silenced. The final curtain descends, seemingly extinguishing all hope. Or when it does emerge, it's but an immature waking dream. Yet the Christian hope, our eschatology, is firmly anchored in the life, work, death and resurrection of Jesus, Vigorously, this Christian hope vigorously protests against such fatalistic views. The graveyard silence, the no to life, yields to the resounding yes of heaven as Jesus proclaims, Behold, I am alive forevermore. The final curtain proves not conclusive. The full stop merely a comma. The grand narrative of life persists. This yes, made possible and actualized in Jesus the Godman, empowers the Christian to defy the status quo, gaze unflinchingly at death and suffering, and in humble revolutionary resistance, assert that the darkest day is not the final day, despite the evidence. Manifest in injustice. In the wreckage of bombed out apartments, of rising seas, and the looming presence of empires of evil and injustice, the Christian, through Jesus, remains steadfast in the conviction that love triumphs. One day, just as the resurrection points to new creation, the dead will be raised and all tears will be wiped away. But this hope, isn't a passive sentiment it's an active force as we pray for the coming of the kingdom we are bestowed with the opportunity here and now in a world of climate breakdown in anticipation of that future day to actualize and embody this hope in the present hope is the tenacious refusal to accept the status quo as the final word and it whispers or dare we say it shouts a defiant protest against injustice oppression and domination we need an anthropological imagination we need a kingdom imagination we need an eschatological imagination and we also need our imaginations And our minds to be cruciform. Cruciform, which means that we're shaped into the image of Jesus. At the heart of the Christian story is Jesus. The one who lived the life and died a death of self-giving, sacrificial love. And we are called in our ethical imaginations to look and love like Jesus. To be formed and shaped into his image. This is the better story, and to story to live by. Whatever befalls. Whether we avert the worst of what may be, or whether we are, well, we're almost certainly heading into a greater catastrophe. But whatever befalls, the church is called to look and love like Jesus, full of self-giving, sacrificial love. The early church had a a, a hymn about Jesus and his love. And it's picked up by Paul in the book of Philippians. And before he quotes from the hymn, he encourages us to have the mind of Jesus. To have our imagination shaped and steeped in the Jesus story, and in doing so, so that we live ethically and just and justly. So let's pick up this, pick up the reading from Philippians. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests. to the interests of others in your relationships with one another have the same mindset or we may say imagination as Christ Jesus and then he quotes from the, the hymn who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage rather He made himself nothing, taking on the nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by coming obedient to death, even death, on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place, and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Paul is calling us not to be selfish, not, not live lives following the beast of individualism and consumerism. But rather to be humble. Not just looking to our own interests, perhaps our own economic interests but looking to the interests of others which are the mind of jesus the one who humbled himself lived a life of self-giving sacrificial love and was a servant who served others brothers and sisters we are called to have a cruciform imagination for our world in crisis.